I'm going to pray for us one more time before we open up God's word together. So join me in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for the privilege of, if we are in Christ, being able to call you Father. What a wondrous joy that the one who created all things and stands over all things as transcendent has become imminent and near to us in the person and work of Jesus. We pray now, Lord, that as we open your scripture, this word that you have breathed out, inspired, given to us to reveal your good nature toward us, your loving, paternal care of your saints, that our hearts would be enlivened to increasingly love and depend on Jesus. Lord, I pray that you'd fill me with your spirit, that I would only say what would make most of him, that you would guard me from saying anything else, and that you'd help me to speak in both grace and truth about the words that you have first given us. We ask all of this to be done in your son's name and for your glory. Amen. Amen. When is the last time that you cheered out loud? When's the last time you really let it go? You know, you cheered out loud, maybe a kid or a grandchild sporting event. One of us has probably been that parent on the sideline. When's the last time maybe you cheered at a family gathering? Many of us just had Christmas. You might have gotten that gift that you had been nudging your spouse for a couple of months. Hey, honey, wouldn't be terrible if that happened to show up under the tree. We cheer and we celebrate, we praise the things that we really love, don't we? And here, in Paul's letter to the, to the church in and around Ephesus, he's going to encourage us to praise the most beautiful one. Praise God himself, even above any of his gifts. Over the next three weeks, we're going to slowly work our way through verse 1 to 14 in Paul's letter to the church near Ephesus. And we're going to see that his big idea for us is praise God. <clears throat> praise the living and true God. And the reason he's going to give us to praise him is because he is wondrous and beauty beyond what we can imagine. I don't know about you guys, but I and my wife, we love to go on hikes, long beautiful hikes, taking us deep into the nature and see all these things that we don't normally see. And last summer, we got to hike one of the most beautiful places we've ever been to, this place called Maroon Bells in central Colorado. Let me paint the picture for you. So it's like this snow-capped mountain with gorgeous wildflowers surrounding it on all sides, and it sits above this calm but icy and placid lake. There, there's a reason photographers flock to this place. It is beautiful. And so as Jen and I ascended up the side of this mountain with our baby and, you know, the front baby carrier in tow, uh, we ascended up the side of this mountain. We couldn't help but praise. We couldn't help but turn around and say to each other, Jen, do you see that? Do you hear those sounds? I think that's an animal making a noise without the cacophony or the echo of a, a, sky, a skyscraper, which is all we knew, being from Philadelphia. Do you smell that fresh air? We just couldn't help but praise all that we were taking in. It was step after step of beauty upon beauty. This morning, we start a spiritual hike much greater than even the hike up Maroon Bells. This morning, we start a trek through Paul's letter to the church in and around Ephesus in order to behold the wondrous beauty of God. And this letter is neatly broken up into two sections, the first of which being chapter 1 to 3, will show us all the beautiful, wonderful things God has done to make his people his children, a new identity, 
And then chapter 4 to 6 is all about the activity that should flow out of this new identity. What should the church, who trusts in Jesus for their salvation, what should they live and do and be like? It's all about identity, guiding activity, position, guiding practice. And Paul says 36 times, 36 times, that it's all in Christ. It's all in and through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Reminding us that the heartbeat of Christianity is always rooted, always, in union with Jesus. And over the next three weeks, he's going to unpack three major blessings for us. He's going to say that we've been chosen by the Father, been redeemed by the Son, and then sealed by the Spirit. And he's going to, at the end of each of these sections, he's going to give us the refrain that's meant to echo into eternity. He's going to say in verse 6, 12, and 14, it's all to the praise of God's glorious grace. This is a letter of God-centered glory and praise from beginning to end. So, I hope you're ready to go on a hike. (laughs) I hope you're ready to journey with me as we ascend this mountain in which we see the beautiful, wondrous display of God's glory. And first, in verse 1 to 3, we pack our bags. We do a little background work to make sure we're understanding the context and the depth of these blessings. So turn with me to verse 1 and 2 to begin as we hear about the author and the audience and his reason to praise. Verse 1 and 2. Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. If anyone knew God's grace, it was the author of this letter, the apostle Paul. Let me remind you of what his conversion story was like. He wasn't raised in a Christian family in a good home and heard the gospel from a young age. He lived most of his adult life to kill the church. Most of his adult life was intended on killing God's people until this miraculous and providential encounter on the road to Damascus that's recorded in Acts chapter 9. Beginning in verse 1 of Acts chapter 9, we get a microcosm, a little picture to what most of his life looked like, and it sounded like this. Saul, his former name, still breathing threats and murder, murder against the disciples of the Lord, antagonist and enemy, to be sure. And a mere five verses later, the risen Jesus Christ appears to him. The scales from his eyes will fall, the eyes of his hearts will be opened, and Jesus needs only a few words to accomplish this. Listen to his words. Saul, why are you persecuting me? I am Jesus. You can almost hear the conviction in between the lines. Paul is convinced and converted. God's grace changes. He sees and then can't help but speak about the risen God whom he has just encountered. From verse 1, he's breathing out murder. By the time we get to verse 20, listen to what he's breathing out. Immediately, he, Paul, or Saul at this point, proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. What a change. What an example of God's radical grace. Paul went from breathing out threats and murder to breathing out words of life. He went from penning orders of condemnation, throwing Christians in jail, to penning 13 letters of the New Testament. It is no wonder that Paul says in 1 Timothy, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. What a reminder 
God's grace can change anyone and anything. That's the living God we've come to encounter today in his living word. And so verse 1, back to the text, Paul is an apostle. He's now sent the former preacher, now imprisoned, persecuted for his faith. He's sent by God to the Gentiles, to those who are in Ephesus, the saints in Ephesus. He's writing this letter to the saints in Ephesus while he sits under house arrest in Rome around the year 62 AD. And despite being bound physically, you can't help but hear him rejoicing spiritually. That's all that we're hearing as he writes to these people in Ephesus, this city where they were tempted to praise and rejoice in so many other things. See, Ephesus wasn't this off-in-the-middle-of-nowhere place. Ephesus, at this point in time in the first century, called the Gateway to Asia, a major modern hub city, kind of like eastern, western seaports in today's age. And Ephesus was home to pretty much everything you would imagine a big city to have. Industry, intellect, idolatry, things like pagan temples were the obvious (laughs) idolatries. Things more subvert, things that you and I know were the more covert idolatries of their time. They had academic forums where the people sought to be the smartest. They had athletic events that rivaled any NFL coliseum in their time. And they had every sort of physical pleasure that one could desire or pursue in this age and this life. It reminds us that Paul's letter to the Ephesus has not only words of input for the first century, but for the 21st century. We are not so far removed, spiritually speaking, from the people he's writing to. The faithful, he says, in Christ Jesus. God's people who are dependent only on God's Son for their salvation. And so he writes to the saints, first, with a word of praise to God. Verse 3 is like the header sentence over the entire verse 3 to 14. And Paul's encouragement centers around praising and lifting up God's glory. Look at verse 3 with me. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Paul doesn't say, bless me, bless you. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This entire letter from start to end, is all about the glorious praise of the God who's made everything. It almost sounds like Psalm 103, doesn't it? Bless the Lord, O my soul. Bless the Lord. Blessed here is just speaking a good word of, praising God. And Paul is praising God because of, listen to what they've received, they've been blessed by God in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Anyone get a good gift at Christmas? Anyone think you might remember that gift in six months? (laughs) The giver of every good gift gives to his children every spiritual blessing. Everything that you and I need for life and eternity is ours only and always in Christ Jesus. And this inheritance is so imperishable and undefiling that it's kept safe in the heavenly places. Jesus is alive and reigning right now at the right hand of God. That's where our inheritance is. Something we can't lose because we would lose it if we could. But we can't because God has given it to us and secured it in the heavenly places. 
it's no wonder that Paul is blessing God, that he's praising him. But it makes me wonder too, what are some of the other things that compete with God for our blessing, our praise? What are some of the other things we live to make most of with our lives and our lips? Think about your life. If someone were to take your phone and scroll through the text, if someone were to scan your emails or have the ability to peer back the, peel back your thoughts and hear what you're thinking, especially in those quiet moments, what would it reveal that you praise? Whom would it reveal that you live to the glory of or bless? See, Paul's strategy to help us praise God is taking our eyes off ourselves and putting them on the one who is all eternal all eternally good, setting our hearts and our eyes on things of eternal worth so that we would live to the praise of his glorious grace. And that's what verse 3 to 14 is all about, living to the praise of God's glorious grace. And he, verse 3 to 14 is one long sentence. Paul can't stop. He, he literally can't take a breath to stop praising God. It's like this waterfall of praise is just gushing out of him. And the words are meant to hit our hearts like rocks at the bottom of a never-ending waterfall. See, Paul's grammar, 200-plus words in a sentence, D-. minus. His theology, A+. Plus. And here's why. He's going to give us three important blessings that are ours in Christ. Chosen by the Father, redeemed by the Son, sealed by the Spirit, and this, of course, we don't have time to go through all of these today, so this morning, we're going to focus on the first one. What does it mean to be chosen by the Father for adoption in verse 4 to 6? And he's going to show us when did this happen, why did it happen, and how did God choose us before, how did God choose us for adoption? almost let the cat out of the bag there. <laughs> verse 4, first half of it, when did God choose his people for adoption? From eternity past. From eternity past. Let's go back to the text. Verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. It's eternity past. Adoption from eternity past. Adoption is a beautiful but often messy process. Jen and I know this um, personally through friends, Paul and Chanel who have been seeking to adopt for so long, raised an exorbitant amount of money, jumped through every legal hoop and then some, and proven to every authority that they're going to be competent parents. They have put on full display their predisposition, their choosing, their predetermining to set their love on a child who has yet to choose them, to provide for and make sure that they could bring this child into a home that would be loving and suitable for their flourishing. It's no mystery that when the Bible talks about our relationship as children to a father, the image that's used is adoption. God chooses his people, predetermines, chooses, and decides to set his love on them even before we loved him, even before the foundations of the world, it says here. I don't know about you guys in terms of how you set your schedules and manage your calendars, but I'm of the school of thought that you do the big things first, the important things. So like in our home, we feed and change the babies before we like tie our shoes or take showers. Productivity gurus um, will call this putting the big rocks in the jar before the sand. Take care of the big stuff first. That's what matters. God's choosing 
before the foundation of the world. From eternity past, God decided and said, this is so important that I'm going to take care of it first. So important that it shows us the church is so highly valued, so highly loved. If he was willing to adopt before the foundation of the world, shouldn't we rightly see his deep love and care for the church? It's no wonder that Moses says, and one of the oldest Psalms ever written, Psalm 90, he begins it and says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place from all generations before the mountains were formed or ever the earth was formed from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Can you think about that? Before any of these trees outside popped up, before any of the oceans around the world were filled with water, before you and I even knew what breath was like, God chose his people before the foundations of the world. Shouldn't we have a high valuation of God's church? See, I think that's the question for us at this point. If God so highly values and loves the church, how can our lives increasingly align with his high valuation of the church? See, I'm so thankful to be a part of this body. We have the opportunity to worship the living God on Sundays, mornings, and evening, Wednesday afternoons and evenings for dinners and classes and small groups throughout this area. What would it look like in 2019 and beyond to increasingly value God's church by aligning the use of your money, your time, your energy, your efforts in accordance with the prioritization that God gives to the church. He chose the church before the foundations of the world. We live to the praise of his glorious grace through the church together. Let's have a high value of it. Let's join together to praise him and edify one another as we seek to make disciples of Jesus to the glory of God. He chose us before the foundations of the world. And he chose us for a very specific purpose. The rest of verse 4 says he chose us to be holy and blameless before him. Let's repeat that verse. (laughs) The second half of verse 4. Look again to the text. Why did God choose his people? That we should be holy and blameless before him. Last week... Jen and I had the privilege of welcoming her family to visit us for the first time to Carterville. They love seeing the area and and getting to enjoy all the things. We took them to Quattro's, if you're wondering. They loved it, hoping that Quattro's becomes a franchise someday. (laughs) And, of course, being a couple days after the Christmas holidays, I got to ask them, what was your favorite Christmas gift you got? And before anyone else could answer, her dad, Bob, began to uh, speak up which is unusual for him. He's a very stoic and even-keeled engineer, very respectable in his emotional stance. And he began to tell me of the gift that his wife Cindy had given him. So I was like, Bob, what made you so excited? <laughs> what, did, what did you get for Christmas? He said, I got a note. I was like, oh, what was on the notes? He said, well, I opened up the envelope. I took out a piece of paper, and there were two words on it. I'm like, you got to tell me, Bob. <laughs> What was on that piece of paper? It said, mortgage paid. Oh, winner. If there are ever two words that will make a grown man smile, mortgage paid. I believe he even said, woo-hoo, in the most excited, pinchati voice you could imagine. It was a wondrous moment. At that point in time, 
he realized his debt had been forgiven and he had been given a new record moving forward. I have no debt. This home is owned and paid off for. When we talk about God's purpose, verse 4, being made holy and blameless, God didn't make us to be comfortable. God didn't make us to just enjoy ourselves. He made us to be like him. In order to be like him, he had to give us something we can't earn and take away something we can't pay off. See, in verse 4, being made holy, it means pure. Pure. I don't know how that came out phonetically wrong. It's like a one-syllable word. It means pure, morally righteous, accepted in God's sight, something we don't have by birth. But it also necessitates we be made blameless. Something has to be taken away from us. The, the accrual of injustice, the accrual of debt that we have racked up against an eternal father for every single one of our sins, past, present, future, must be taken away. God must pay our spiritual penalty, and he must accredit to our account a spiritual righteousness. Oh, my goodness. If you ever felt helpless, more than a 25- or 30-year mortgage will make you feel helpless. The accrual of an eternal debt for our cosmic treason and sin against God will make us feel helpless. And that's exactly the point. We can't become holy and blameless on our own. We must be made holy and blameless through faith in Jesus. See, if you're just checking Christianity out, or you're just considering what does all of this mean, you might think Christianity is like other religions that say, clean yourself up. Get your act together, and then you'll be accepted. But the gospel says no matter how well you play on the back nine, spiritually speaking, that front nine still needs to be taken care of. You need new righteousness. You need to be forgiven of past, present, future sin. You need to be made holy and blameless. You can't earn this. And we know this to be true all the way back since shortly after God made all things and called them good in Genesis 1 and 2, we see the inception of unholy humanity. See, back in Genesis 1 and 2, God said all things were good. He put us in a good place. Makes sense. He's a good father who chose us before the foundations of the world, brings us into a good home. He chose us before the foundations of the world. It took us less than a chapter to choose our gifts, our desires and his gifts over him. He made us before the foundations of the world, and so quickly we choose our desires and his gifts over him. In Genesis 3, we hear goodness being undone. Adam and Eve, they're in the garden. The serpent, that crafty serpent, comes along, tempts Eve, tempts her to doubt God's goodness, disobey his commands with one simple question. Did God really say you shouldn't eat of that tree? Did God really say that? It sounds so familiar. That's how we rationalize so much of our wayward thoughts and activity, isn't it? Did God really say that? Is that what he really meant? See, Eve, she saw that fruit. In verse 6 in Genesis 3, it says, It became a delight and desire to her. A delight, something she enjoyed more than God. A desire, something she had to have. Couldn't live without. A heart idol that began to push God from the center of her affections to the periphery of her thoughts. And she doubted that he was good. Why would God hold out on me? A delight and desire, even above God. That's what we wrestle with. And once she believed that she needed and must have that for her peace, for her life to be content, they took the fruit. 
They shared it. They ate of it. They sinned. They fell short of God's holy standards. Holiness was lost. Blame was taken on. And this is the nature, the willful choice that you and I inherit too. Ephesians 2, in a few weeks, will tell us, by nature and by choice, we are born dead, spiritually dead, in our trespasses and sins. Romans 3 will say, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Well, happy new year to you too, Jameson. (laughs) See, the gospel is such good news only to those who have accepted the bad news of our past records. The gospel is good news to those who are willing to say, my past is so bitter My need for Jesus is so deep that I must run to him. I have nothing inside of me that would warrant this adoption. I have nothing inside of me that would make me holy and blameless. But the good news that we celebrate is that in God's glorious grace, the door to adoption is open wide for all who trust in him. And here's how. God's perfect son, Jesus who never sinned, came to live in our place. He left eternal comfort to enter the orphanage of our sin. He came, walked amongst us, never sinned, perfectly holy. And then he went to the cross. He died the death that our our sins deserve in our place. And then after three days, he walked out of the tomb, saying that anything that could ever separate God's children from him as father is now done away with. Sin, Satan, and death, you are done. In Christ Jesus, victory has, is won. See, Adam and Eve, our first ancestors, they failed at that first tree. The serpent toppled them. At that second tree, Calvary, Christ was victorious. He tamed the serpent. He toppled death. He walked up to Calvary. He walked out of the tomb. And that is the only good news that you and I can bank our eternal hopes on. That is the only means through which you and I can be made holy and blameless. It's he for me on the cross, the holy one coming to rescue unholy ones because God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us so that in him we might become, might become, not earn, not try harder, not clean it up, might become in him the righteousness of God. Penalty paid. New record given. What a good news that the gospel offers us. See, at conversion, we are made holy and blameless, positionally sanctified. God looks at us and says, holy and blameless, once and for all. And then the spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead now also dwells within every believer. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. Not just eternally, but helping you day after day do and desire things that align with his character. See, when you are adopted by God, you are sealed for eternity, but you're changed day after day into conformity to his character. Paul tells us in Romans 8 that those whom God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. We know this to be true, don't we? Every child that grows up in a family increasingly takes on those family resemblances. Unfortunately, growing up, my brothers and I were stubborn and sarcastic. We had many other great qualities we had got from our parents, but we began to see that as we got farther and farther away from our families. In Christ, when you are adopted and you walk with the Lord through faith in his work for you and the spirit living in you, you're increasingly made loving, holy, patient, kind, just, 
things that resemble your father's nature. See, that's the work of the Spirit in the rest of our lives, making us more and more like Jesus. And this happens as we partner with the Spirit to put sin to death and increasingly enjoy Jesus. And so the question for you and I is, what besetting sin have you grown comfortable with instead of eager to battle? What besetting sin, what delight or desire apart from God is capturing your affections. What do you put in the blank of the sentence, if only I had, fill in the blank, my life would be complete. I would feel worthy, content. I would find that joy and that peace I'm looking for. See, Scripture says these things are heart idols. Things we feel like we must have. Things we feel like if those weren't there, life wouldn't be worth it. And in all reality, our heart idols enslave us to sin instead of liberating us to live as children of God. The only thing that liberates us to live as children of God is when Jesus is our delight and desire, period. When Jesus is our delight and desire, period. What is it for you? Sometimes it's really subtle. Sometimes it's gossip behind people's backs, seeking to feel better about yourself in order to, by putting others down. Sometimes it's moral compromise at work. I just want that promotion. I'm, I can justify just this one little thing, this one little fudge of the numbers, one little procurement of something for myself. Moral compromise in the pursuit of power. For some of us, it's comfort. I put the me time on the schedule before others' time because I need that me time. Sometimes it's even good things like traditions that we feel like we must uphold, even if they come up and against biblical commands. What do we delight and desire more than God? And how does that steal joy that we might have in Jesus? How does it rob God of glory? See, we've been made holy and blameless through Christ's finished work. And now his, the work of the Spirit in us increasingly makes us holy and blameless. So let us partner with the Spirit in submitting to God's Word, following the prompting of the Spirit to do and desire what most reflects our Father's character and not our natural desires. We've been chosen for adoption before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless. And finally, we've been chosen, how? In love, in paternal love. Look with me finally to the end of verse 4 and all the way through the rest of verse 6. Verse 4, the last two words. In love. Some words are worth saying slowly which for me is not many, but these are two of them. In love, he, God, predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. You can hear the praise. You can hear the praise, and it's motivated because of God's love. Over the last two weeks, Many of us have enjoyed many wonderful meals. We've gotten to have Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, New Year's Eve, New Year's Day, you name it, and many in between. And we savor good meals because they're made by good chefs. See, no one goes to the restaurant, your favorite restaurant, hoping it's waitstaff and chef switch night. We don't ever want that to happen. When I go to my mom's house, I don't want my brother cooking for me. I want the good stuff. I have a very similar approach to preaching. 
In my preaching, I am not the chef. I am the butler at best. I am seeking to humbly and joyously serve to you the bread of life instead of a second-rate meal of my ideas. You don't need my ideas. You and I need the living and active word of God. My goal is to re-talk God's talk, to bring God's word from the kitchen of Scripture to the table of your hearts, not just your heads, the table of your hearts. And in verse 4 to 6, we have words feasting, worthy of feasting on, worthy of savoring, not just letting it settle in as, okay, I agree with that truth, but words that change how we relate to our eternal Father. Listen again to those two words that change it all. In love. In love. See, the love of God has always been unquestionably for our good and his glory. Romans 5 tells us that God shows his love for us and that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. Psalm 103 says he has an everlasting, abounding, and steadfast love. God has loved his people from before the foundations of the world, and because of that, he predestined, predetermined to adopt them. Go back to verse 5. In love, what did he do? Predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus. Predestined literally means predetermined. He chose first. God chose first before we chose him. And for many of us, predestination, predetermining, it prompts questions. How could this happen? I don't understand. Why did it happen? Is it fair that this happened? Let's remember the context of our passage. This is a passage of praise and worship. It's not intended to fuel arrogance or debate, or discord. It's meant to bring peace to the believer. God chose you before the foundation of the world. can you celebrate that? He loved you even before you loved him. That's such good news. Peace, praise to our eternal Father. Verse 5 is God speaking through Paul. Predestined is a biblical word from the mouth of God. And it helps us understand salvation in part, just like verse 13 and 14 will help us understand that hearing and believing the word of truth is part of salvation too. And heaven forbid that you or I ever assume we understand all of God's ways, lest we forget that his ways are much higher than our ways. We will never have salvation figured out in full, but we can celebrate it as we receive it based on what he's revealed to us. Let's be quick to remember We are, as another pastor has said really well, we are fallen creatures with a three-ounce brain and a sinful disposition. We will never fully understand his ways. They are much higher than our ways. See, my son, Josiah, and Ezra, they don't understand why I do everything for them, but based on their understanding of what they do know, they know it's always for their good. It's always for their good. In the same way with salvation... I don't know all of God's ways, but I trust that he's in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. I trust that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And I don't. That he chose me before the foundations of the world in Christ to be adopted, to be his son. I don't know everything about God's ways and salvation, but I do know that neither myself nor anyone else in this room deserves adoption. 
I don't know everything about salvation, but I do know none of us naturally deserves adoption. And so I praise God who predestined, predetermined to adopt me through faith in his son's work, nothing that I did, but through faith in his son's work to be an adopted child of his forever. It's his love that wins your adoption. It's his love that says, I'm not just going to be a foster parent to you. I'm going to offer you an eternal home. Adoption is unchangeable. Once adopted, you are always that you are always a part of that family. God has come to bring us to home with him for eternity. Nothing can separate us from the love of God if we are in Christ. And it all came about through the sacrifice of his son. Like five minutes before I got up here to do announcements, I was holding my son Ezra. And I smiled at him, and he smiled back at me. And in that moment, I can't uh, describe to you a greater joy. A greater joy. I cannot imagine letting anything bad happen to my children. And the shocking reality of the gospel is that God so loved us and wanted to make us his children that he looked at rebellious orphans, myself being the foremost, and said, I so long for you to be my child. I so long to see your, your praise, that smile towards me. I so long to shower you with my love that I'm willing to let my perfect holy son die for you. I'm willing to put him forward in your place because you can't offer what I demand. You can't be holy. Only he is. God loved us so much that he sent his only son into the world to save sinners so that through him we wouldn't die, but we would live. Would you let that sink in? Would you let the unique but ever impossibly deep love of God sink in that motivated his choice of you? And so the question for us in closing is, do you relate to God as a father? Do you relate to God as a father? First and foremost, is this, this means, have you received salvation? See, God has come not to be just a teacher or a genie or your friend. He's come to be your father. And there's only two potential responses to this God who's come to be your father. It's rejection or receiving. There's nothing in between. There's no vaguely familiar with. There's no, I attend church, I have Christian friends and family. That, that's not a category. The categories are reject or receive. They're both personal responses to his revelation. We reject God and say, I'd rather go it alone or live for something else. Or I receive him. I say, God, I come to you with nothing of my own worth. I come to you in spite of all the rebellion that I've had against you in my past track, rec past track record. I come to you knowing I need your grace and I can't supply anything except what you offer. That is how Christianity starts. That's, that's what faith looks like. I trust in Jesus' finished work, his perfect life, substitutionary death, bodily resurrection to procure for me every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. I got no other hope. It's Christ alone. Do you relate to him as a father through salvation? And if you do, do you relate to God as your father in day-to-day -day living? Do you depend on him in prayer? Is your prayer time this time of warm, intimate relationship with God where, of course, you present to him your needs, but you also speak back the words in Scripture, God, thank you for giving me every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places? Do you depend on God in going to him in Scripture even? Do you make 
listening to him in his word a day after day joy instead of just a, a box to check off. And then your identity, the way you view yourself. Do you view yourself in light of what God says to be true about you, both worse than you think, but more loved than you can imagine? <laughs> Humbling. Worse than you think. My son had to die for you. That's how bad your sin is. And yet more love than you can imagine. My son died for you. That's it. No other identity that people can put on you can change that. See, many of us, we struggle to relate to God as Father because we've grown up with not-so-great earthly fathers. Many of us have grown up with not-so-great earthly mothers. Many of us have had not-so-great colleagues, friends, spouses, or anyone else say, you're not worthy, you're not loved, I don't value you. Until we bring our pain and our suffering to the God who is our heavenly, perfect Father, we'll never know that peace. But when we run to him, when we receive his paternal and eternal love, we find healing that no one else in this world can offer. Healing that no other words can bring. Healing that only comes through a risen and living Savior who promises our hope is not in vain. Jesus is alive. Your hope in him is not in vain. The God who reigns is the God who is your Father, bestowing upon you his love even now. Let us rest in that. Do you relate to God as Father? The only place we can conclude this first step of our spiritual trek is in verse 6. We live to the, Paul says, all of this is to the praise of God's glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. It's as if he's letting us stop on our hike and take a scenic overlook and just soak in all that we've seen, all this wondrous beauty that we've just seen of God and choosing his people for adoption before the foundations of the world. So that's the invitation to you. Let it soak in. Pause on this spiritual hike. Let your hearts feast upon the goodness of God to choose his people before the foundations of the world. And if you have yet to receive this good news, receive Jesus as your Savior, well, don't delay. Run to him. The the Holy Spirit may be using the preached word as a means of drawing you unto this faith, unto faith in him. Today could be a day that changes your eternity. Give him your sin. Receive his forgiveness. And if you have, you're walking with the Lord, I encourage you to highly value the church, to never be lax in your pursuit of holiness, and to increasingly relate to and depend on God as Father. We've been chosen by the Father for adoption, all through Jesus Christ, the Beloved. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we love you. We call it a great privilege to know you as your children. We acknowledge we deserve nothing but rejection, eternal condemnation in hell, but through your glorious grace, you've sent your Holy One to die for us unholy ones, bringing us to you, (laughs) doing something we couldn't do, paying our debt, giving us holy, righteous records. And so now we turn to praise you in song and in prayer. Lord, we ask that you would be present here, leading us to respond to you, to savor your beauty, and to increasingly enjoy and relate to you as our Father. In your son's name we pray. Amen.